friends, welcome to another episode of Making Disciples. My name is Chris Rogers and I am your host on this podcast around discipleship. We look at lots of different things, but I tend to split them into three different areas. We have uh, head, heart and hands. Head is how God is shaping our thinking uh, and uh, you know the education of understanding our faith in our heads, our heart is more around how God is shaping our hearts to be more like his spiritual disciplines and the practice of prayer and contemplation and maybe uh, confession. And then hands, how do we live out our faith in our daily lives? Today's episode is one where I'm going to be talking uh, about a section from the book of Exodus that I'm hoping will totally change the way that you read the book of Exodus. I'm preparing at the moment for a sermon that I'm going to be giving uh, at my church on this very topic. So that's why I'm going to be covering this particularly today. But it comes uh, from a new book that I've just uh, had published called The Bible Book by Book, an illustrated journey through its people, places and themes. This book, The Bible Book by Book, was written originally about 12 years ago, was published about 11 years ago and sold out and it was became really quite difficult to get hold of a copy of this book because it had sold so well i ended up buying library copies old copies from libraries that were closing and um picking them up from different places to to sell on i was essentially selling on secondhand copies of my bible book well we convinced the publisher to do an updated edition it wasn't that difficult eventually in the end but I had this dream of updating the bible book by book to make it look not like a travel book like it, it looked like a travel journal but actually updating it so it was really clean uh, and fresh and modern with some new uh, images in there and some updated bits and pieces that I wanted in the original copy of the book but because of space uh, the publisher had, you know made me remove them well we've put it all in there and uh, this is the updated edition which I'm really excited about so the bible book by book and what we do in the bible book by book is we w- literally do what I've just said we walk through the bible book by book we look at who are the author when it was written what type of book it is, because there's different genres, different writing styles. So we would look at what are the different writing styles uh, and what type of book it is. Is it we, we look at what are the key characters that appear in that book and what are the major themes that appear in that book? So each book has essentially a different theme. And then we also look at the title style, because uh, you know the, the way the books are titled is really interesting. Where do we get the title, the Exodus from? Well, it's from the events that happen inside. Uh, So sometimes to understand the title can really help you understand what's going to happen in the book. Uh, We look at the background, the location, the geography, because sometimes understanding the geography will change the way that you essentially read the book uh, because you'll understand the location a bit better. Then we go through a whole string of bits of detail, and I would describe these as historical uh, pieces of information that can totally change the way that you read a book of the Bible. And that is one of the things I'm going to draw out today. I'm going to talk to you today about something that I have never heard a sermon on. I've never heard somebody preach on this. There are writers who write about this, but never preached on it. And I don't understand why Christian leaders don't know what I'm going to speak on today. But it's going to center around a Jewish artifact called the Ketubah. And when you know what a ketubah is, you know how it's used 
Friends, you are not going to read the Bible the same again. Trust me. So we're going to jump right in with an episode today on the book of Exodus, which is coming straight from the Bible book by book. So if you've got a copy of the Bible book by book or you're you're picking up a copy after this podcast today, page 17. This is where you're going to find everything that I'm talking about today on page 17. So friends, I hope you find this really interesting. I would love to encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible book by book. Hey, but you don't need to, to understand and enjoy today's podcast. So today, friends, we are talking about the Ketubah. And we're talking about weddings. So friends, get excited for a wedding. Okay, friends, here we go. We're going to walk through a Jewish wedding. I'm going to take you on a time-traveling exercise where I'm going to take you back Uh, to about 1,500 years before Jesus. And what was emerging during the time of the Exodus and and just before uh, was the development of the understanding of who God was and how God wanted to interact with people's lives. So the Jewish people had uh, practices that were emerging and coming out of their faith. And one is around the wedding. So I want to talk to you about how a Jewish wedding worked. So you're a nice Jewish boy and you're out walking the fields. You see a beautiful young Jewish maiden in the fields. She's working the crops and um, you look at her and you think to yourself, I want to make her my bride. And you go to her father and mother and you would say, I, I, I want to marry your, your daughter. Will you let me marry her? They'd give you permission. And then you would gather for a little ceremony with this young woman. And the family would gather around as well because everything was in the family. You would never do it without your, the family being there. And over a glass of wine, the, the groom would say this. I will take you out of your situation. I can see the situation that you're living in. I'm going to take you out of it. I'm going to rescue you from it. I'm going to redeem you. And I'm going to take you to a new home. So he'd say these four things. He would then sip the wine. He'd hand it to his bride. And he would say this. Almost like the, the wine was representing blood. And he would say, this is a life debt that I pledge to you. If you get yourself in debt, your debt is now my debt. If you get yourself arrested, I will replace you in the prison. I will go to prison for you. And if you get yourself in so much trouble, it's your life that is going to be taken from you. I will die in your place. And he would hand her the glass of wine and she would sip it. And it was a way of saying, I'm committing my blood for your blood. Uh, This is the commitment that I make to you. And she would say, you know, I do, I will, kind of, I'll marry you. And then what would happen is he would go off now for a 12-month period. And going off, he would go to his family home. And on the side of his family home, he would now have 12 months to build a home from him and his bride. Uh, And it would be a, a home that was just for them, that was attached to his family. So I'm going off now to build a room for you uh, at my father's house, uh, he would say. And then, as a part of this, he would say, uh, this is my promise. You will be my segula, 
Sugula means treasured possession. You will be my Sugula and I will die for you. I love that word, Sugula. Sounds like a, a word from Star Wars. I love it. So he would then go off and he would build a home attached to his family home for his bride. A year later, a message would be sent to the village to where the young girl was living. And the message would say, now the wedding will happen in three days. It's time for the wedding. So in these three days before the wedding, the bride would hatch, would uh, get herself ritually cleansed and clean in preparation for the marriage. And there was two things that would happen, a mikvah and a kadash. The mikvah, imagine a baptism pool. And she would get into the baptism pool and she'd be ritually washed like in baptism. It's what the priests would go on uh, to do. Now, they often didn't have a, a baptism bath, so they would go to the river. And either place, she would be uh, baptized or uh, washed clean in the mikvah. Uh, she would be then anointed uh, a little um, liturgical practice called the Kadash, and they would sign her with oil and they would consecrate her to God for the wedding that was about to happen. So she'd have three days to bathe, to wash, to become ritually cleansed and to be consecrated for the wedding. Now, after three days, uh, so everyone in the village knew that the wedding was about to happen. At uh, the start of the day of the wedding, after these three days, uh, someone would go out into the village and would play the shofar. Uh, the shofar literally uh, is a ram's horn horn. Now, just in case you are falling asleep. So there you go. I've been practicing my ram's horn blowing. So the, uh, the shofar will be blown and played. And everybody in the village would know today is the day of the wedding. So the groom would arrive, the bride would arrive, and in a central location, they would stand together under something called the hoopah. Now, the hoopah was a really a prayer shawl. So we know them from rabbinical times. Rabbis would wear a prayer shawl. Well, anybody could wear them, but you know, specifically you see rabbis wearing them. But the idea of the prayer shawl was that this was a portable prayer closet. And you would pray in your prayer closet with your, your prayer shawl over you, the talit, it was called. And your prayer shawl then became holy because it was a place of prayer. It was a prayer room. It was, it was seeped in prayer. The prayer shawl represented God's presence because it had been prayed in so much. Generationally, prayer shawls would get passed from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. Um, so they would hang the prayer shawl up uh, on four uh, sticks and it was called the hoopah and it represented uh, the presence of God resting over uh, the couple uh, to get married and then and then they'd ask the question will you marry him will you marry her yes I do or yes I do and then the couple would sign a document this document is called the ketubah now, the ketubah is a document, a legal document, that was crafted leading up to the wedding. And there'll be two copies of the ketubah, one for him and one for her. 
both of them would be identical to each other. They both would get signed. And if this marriage ended up uh, falling apart, heading towards divorce, then both would have a copy of the marriage certificate, the the hoopa, sorry, the uh, ketubah, uh, that they could use. Well, you, we, you promised in the ketubah that this is what you would do, and you didn't do it. So it was it was a way of arguing in divorce. Now, let me just give you a little idea. How did the ketubah work? The ketubah was a document that started with a sentence on how the couple met. So I saw you in the field. I saw you working the corn. And I, I knew I loved you. So I took you out for KFC and we went to see Toy Story together. So it, was a, it would be a, a sentence that would state how the couple met. And it would then start by saying something like, and they could come in any order, okay? There was no rule over what would be in a ketubah, but it would be an agreement on how this marriage would work. And it start by saying, uh, we, uh, we shall have no other lovers. That We will be uh, the only lovers in this marriage. There won't be a third wheel in here. That we, There will be no other lovers. It would say things like, in public, we will only speak well of each other. Uh, when you're with your girlfriends, you won't speak ill of him. When he is with his guy friends, he won't speak ill of his wife. In public, we'll only speak well of each other and give dignity. We might argue at home. We may have issues and conflicts. But in public, we will only speak well of others. So we won't misuse each other's names. Then it would say something like, and we promise for this marriage to work, we will have a rest day together. We will have a day together. Um, you know, I, I love to talk about, you know, we, we will have a date day. We'll have a day where me and you are only me and you and, and we can invest into this marriage and into our family. It then says something like this. Um, for Hanukkah, your family did this. For Hanukkah, your family did that. We're going to honour the traditions of our families and our parents. We will honour our parents but we will do our own thing. This is how we are going to do Hanukkah. So I'll honour our families. It then lists maybe a whole string of other things, and it might have in there something like, the Joneses have the most beautiful home. They have a wonderful donkey. Uh, they have got an incredible family, uh, and we will not uh, covet what our neighbours have, but we will be content with what we have because God has blessed us. So that's what the Ketubah would do. It would set out some statements of how this marriage is going to work. If this marriage is going to thrive, this marriage is going to work, then this is how we are going to live out this marriage. So that was the Ketubah. And what happened next? Well, the ketubah wasn't the marriage and the idea wasn't the marriage. The marriage friends was this. They would go round the back or somewhere close by uh, into a tent that too was made of prayer shawls and they would consummate the relationship. The family would stand on the outside and cheer them on. They'd give them um, hints and tips on what to be doing and basically they would have sex. Sex was the marriage. So when people say, Chris, where does the Bible say that you, should, uh, you shouldn't have sex outside marriage? Actually, what the Bible doesn't say is that you shouldn't have sex outside marriage. The Bible says sex is marriage. Um, and, and that's the ultimate. If you, if, you, if you sleep around, you're essentially 
doing the marriage act. What we have done in Western culture is we've separated the legal marriage and the sexual union uh, apart. And we have made these two things separate things. And then we have degraded the sex piece. So actually in Jewish culture, sex was marriage. Well, Chris, where is that in the Bible? It's not in the Bible because the Bible only tells us what we need to know and makes a presumption that we just know some things. So because this was a traditional practice, the Bible just presumes that you and I are going to know this stuff. That scripture has moved into a global context. This is where we have to know the culture of which it's written to understand what the Bible is essentially asking from us. So that is the Jewish wedding. Now, if you joined me in the book of Exodus, chapter seven, chapter three, verse seven, it says this. I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've seen the misery. I've seen your situation. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned for their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. I have come to rescue you. The second thing uh, the young boy would say to his future bride, uh, uh, from the hand of the Egyptians, I'm going to bring you up out of that land. I'm going to redeem you, and I'm going to take you to a spacious land, a land flowing with me called milk and honey. I'm going to take you to a new home. Exodus 3 verse 7 is a massive nod, nod, wink, wink to the Jewish um, ceremony where the marriage would be set out. The um, the point where the boy proposes to the girl. If you were reading this, uh, knowing Jewish liturgy, you'd go, oh my gosh, we've got it all here. I'm going to take you out of the situation. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to redeem you. And I'm going to take you home. Then we jump to chapter 19 of the book of Exodus, and this is where it really starts to hum with wedding language. Exodus 19, chapter f- verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession, my segula. I love it. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, our marriage, and out of all, our, out of all the nations, you will be my segula. Verse 7, so Moses went back and he summoned the elders and the people and sent before them all the words of the Lord that had commanded them to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. We do. Yes, we will be your segula, your treasured possession. Moses, Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud. So this cloud was going to come and rest over the people uh, just like the hoopah. The presence of God resting over the bridal party. And Yahweh said to Moses, go uh, to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and have them wash their clothes and be ready for the third day. Just like the wedding ceremony, but also just like Jesus. Wherever you see the number three, ask ourselves what miracle is about to occur. Well, the, the miracle that is about to occur here for us is a Jewish wedding. God marrying his people be ready for the third day take note when you see the number three after Moses had gone down this is verse 14 as Moses had gone down the mountains to the people he consecrated them Kadash. he consecrates them and they washed their clothes they became ritually pure just like the mikvah uh, that we see in the Jewish wedding ceremony so uh, they prepared themselves for the third day, and they abstained from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet 
blast. Love it. Everybody knew it's wedding day. There's something amazing about to happen. So the bride is there. She's ritually cleansed. She's prepared for a marriage. She's consecrated. She has said yes to becoming God's segula, his treasured possession. Yes, we do. We're ritually pure. We're ritually ready. And now it's the third day and the trumpet has blasted. So we've got God and we've got his people. And in this location, God now gives what we call the Ten Commandments, but that's our name for them. A better translation might be the Ten Statements. So the Lord spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Hey, this is the opening sentence of the Ketubah, friends. This is how we met. It then goes on. You shall have no other gods before me. What's that sound like? You shall have no other lovers before me. You shall not make for yourself an image of any form under heaven and earth, beneath the earth, graven images. Verse 7, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord, Yahweh, your God. Do not misuse Yahweh, your God's name, because Yahweh will not hold anyone guiltless from misusing his name. Let's not misuse our um, partner's name. Uh, in public misusing the name the name of God had been misused people would say things like uh, you know you've heard the phrase um, I uh, I promise you on my mother's grave uh, which is you know I promise you I'm going to do this on my mother's grave well what they would say is I promise you that I will do this uh, on the name of the almighty or this business deal that we're doing uh, then I will fulfill it on the name of the Almighty. And God says, do not use my name in such a way. Do not misuse my name. Then it says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Keep the date day holy. The Sabbath day was meant to be a day when you got with God to have a date. Church is meant to be an intimate place where you come before your husband, God, and date him. Do you know the word worship can be literally translated as to kiss? The original understandings of worship was that you would intimately come before God and kiss. Worship is meant to be an intimate thing. Date day, Sabbath day, uh, is all about being intimate with God. You know, it was also about resting well together. We will rest to, to together well. Then it says, honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land that Yahweh, your God, is giving you. Honoring your father and mother, remembering where you've come from, but honoring them well. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not give false testimony. And then it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Friends. The Ten Commandments aren't a set of rules and regulations where God is going to wag his finger at you. The Ten Commandments, my friends, is this. It's all wedding language. It's the ketubah. It's a, if our relationship with God is going to thrive, this is what it's going to look like. These are the rules for how we will do marriage with God well. They're not meant to be thou shalt not. They're actually meant to be this beautiful invitation into a relationship with God. Why? Because it's all about relationship, not religion. It's not about rules and regulations. 
We do the rules and regulations because we can't cope with a relationship with God. And so we end up with rules. But what God is giving us here is the ketubah. It very much is God setting out how our relationship with the divine will work. Well, friends, what is the ramifications of this throughout whole of Scripture? It means the whole of Scripture is riddled with the same kind of language. Right the way from the Exodus story, right the way through to Revelation. Let me just point a few things out to you. Gospel of John, what is the first miracle that Jesus does uh, in the Gospel of John? He describes it as the first sign of the kingdom, the first sign that Jesus does. The first sign, friends, is a wedding at Cana. It's a wedding that has gone wrong. It's gone wrong. And it's a wedding that is going to disgrace the bride and the husband. And Jesus came to correct it. He came to correct the wedding so it was not a wedding of disgrace. Hang on, what is Jesus coming to do on the cross? He's coming to rectify the disgrace that the marriage that God and his people are now in. What is Jesus doing on the cross? Jesus, as the perfect Jewish husband, is dying for his disgraced wife. His wife who should be killed because of her crimes, because of her sin and um, behavior Jesus comes as the husband to the bride his people and dies on her behalf so that she doesn't have to die he's being the perfect husband Corinthians 2 chapter uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 2 I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy I promised you to one husband to Christ Jesus so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him it's all wedding language isn't it being used ephesians 5 27 and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or blemish but holy and blameless what is that alluding to well that is alluding to the mikvah and the kadash being ritually cleansed ritually pure, uh, pure. what about this revelation 19 verse 7 where does it end it ends with a wedding feast friends Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb. Who is the lamb? The lamb is Jesus. For the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The church has got herself ready to be married to the bride. I love it. Jesus says, I'm going off to prepare a room for you in the father's house. And he one day will return for his bride when there will be the marriage and the wedding feast. So this is where we're heading, friends. It's the image of of Exodus is then being played out through Jesus Christ. Let's just look at a couple of things in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 16, 28 says, you prostituted yourself to other gods. The people of God were meant to be married to Yahweh but they prostituted themselves to other gods. Hosea 4.15 is all about, the whole thing is about a prophet that, that has married a prostitute. And it says, uh, through you, Israel, you committed adultery. So the, the language of adultery, the language of weddings and feasts and celebrations and the marriage between the lamb and his bride is therefore throughout the whole of scripture. And, law, uh, and friends, it starts with the Exodus story. It starts with God's people signing the Ketubah, the Ten Commandments. So, 
how do we respond to this? Friends, I think the way that we have to respond to this is very simple. Exodus 19.10 says, consecrate my people and have them wash. Friends, we need to consecrate ourselves and be cleansed from our sin, prepared and ready for Jesus' return. Not so that we may just gain entry to the heavenly realms or whatever that looks like, but so that we would be prepared to be a part of the bridal party, a part of what whom God is going to marry. And uh, the, the eternal realms are actually a giant wedding feast that we are invited to. I hope that just blows your mind about the Ten Commandments. Friends, once you know what the ketubah is, you go, Ten Commandments can never be read the same. You might want to check out that paragraph and that section in the Bible book by book. There's a photograph of a ketubah in there. You might just want to Google the ketubah. You will find them throughout the internet. I've got a um, traditional ketubah in my study, which is just really cool because it's actually set out like the Ten Commandments. When you see it, you go, wow, that really does look like Ten Commandments. So friends, I'm just going to pray for us that we may be consecrated and ready for the wedding feast that is to come. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his death and resurrection. We thank you that he is the perfect husband dying for his disgraced bride. And we thank you for what he did so that we may be washed clean and that we may be consecrated and be prepared ready for what you have in store in the future. Lord, would we live our lives in such a way we bring glory to you and the relationship that you have uh, offered us and want with us. We pray that in the name of Jesus, our future husband. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, until next time, have a great week. If you found today's podcast interesting or inspiring, you might want to support us by buying us a coffee. In the show notes, you'll see a way of supporting us to buy us a coffee. I always sit drinking coffee while recording these uh, podcasts. So you might want to bless us in that way. If you do, love you to go for it. But friends, until next time, grace and peace.